All right, thank you, Stuart, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you all for being here today. It's a wonderful day. Uh, as I like to say, it's any day is a great day that the Lord made for us. All right, the, this afternoon I would like to talk to you a little bit about one of the aspects of the American Revolution that sometimes does not get as much attention uh, from scholars, uh, the media, the public, and that is about religion during the era of the founding. In 1776, at the time of the American Revolution, we had a Continental Congress, but it represented states. And what a lot of people forget is that we really had states and regions before we had a United States of America. We did not really have a united government until the Constitution, which was then put in place in 1789. So there was a considerable amount of time from Lexington and Concord in 1775 until you had a more unified government in 1789. In New England, you had the Puritan and uh, uh, beginnings with their religious heritage. In New York, you had the Dutch and the Anglican religious heritage. In Pennsylvania, you had the Quakers and their religion. Then in Virginia, you had the Anglicans, which would become the Episcopal faith and the Tidewater aristocracy that followed it. In North Carolina, you had fewer planters and plain folk. In South Carolina, you had those rich rice and indigo planters, most of them also being Anglicans. And Georgia, with its only major city of Savannah and some plantations around it, was the newest of those states that would come to form the 13 United States. And Georgia had been around for only about 40 years. Then there was this backcountry, which was not a state, but an important region in the new United States, and it stretched from western Pennsylvania all the way down to the upcountry uh, up of Georgia. Between the 1730s and the 1770s, this area had filled up with settlers who were recent immigrants to the colonies, and then after 1776, the United States. Many of them had traveled from war-torn regions of Germany, from Scotland, from Northern Ireland, from the borderlands of England. And many had gone to Pennsylvania, but then traveled southward down the Great Wagon Road, which was one of our first interstates in American history. It took people from the midsection of uh, Pennsylvania, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, to the east, down through the Shenandoah Valley, and eventually ending at Pine Tree Hill known today as Camden, South Carolina. It was in this region that these new settlers, as I said, most of them from Germany or from the highlands of Scotland or from areas of Europe in which they did not feel comfortable either religiously or economically, they moved to this region, they came off the Great Wagon Road and they put up their settlements and more than anything, wanted to be left alone. It was in this region during the 1730s to 1770s, at the same time that these immigrants were coming in, that the Great Awakening broke out. The Great Awakening was one of the major religious impulses that went all throughout the colonies and then extended into the new United States. It was when the groups known as the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and then later the Methodists drew people into their churches in which pastors preached and they preached outside of 
many of the established faiths that the colonial governments had set up, like the Anglican faith, or even the Puritans did up in Massachusetts and the other parts of New England. And most of these settlers, if they were Germans, they were probably Lutherans or dissenter groups who had suffered religious oppression and warfare in the Rhine River Valley and other areas of Germany, and they came over to that back country between Pennsylvania and Georgia. Many were also Scots who were Presbyterians who fled oppression, poverty, social chaos, and religious oppression in the borderlands of England and Scotland. In 1772, for example, 467 families had left Ulster in Northern Ireland because a lady who was pregnant had been killed by her landlord when her family could not pay the rent. The Presbyterian minister preached a sermon saying the results were what one could expect from British Anglican oppressors and urged all of his congregants to leave for South Carolina because it offered for them religious freedom. This is when that idea comes to be planted into the colonies, this idea of religious freedom, which did not exist in Europe. In Europe, following the Reformation in six, ending in 1648, each of the monarchs in the various countries of Europe established a faith that everyone had to follow, everyone had to pay taxes to, everyone had to be married in that faith, all legal documents and other things had to be recognized by the monarch who is not only head of state but also head of church, defender of the faith, as some of the titles went. This meant that if you dissented from that faith, you would not only be committing you know, uh, an uh, act of, of uh, faith for your conscience, but also you're committing a crime, treason against the state. And so a lot of these dissenters would leave and it's this idea of religious freedom that drew people to the colonies and then what became the new United States. So religious freedom was not something that the United States invented. It was one of the reasons why people came to this country. It was one of our establishing reasons for the United States coming about. These people had a rage for settling far back, one British official commented, because once they came to the colonies and realized they could practice their religious freedom, they also did not want to be involved in some of those established faiths that the aristocracy in Charleston or the aristocracy in Williamsburg had put forth. The Virginia backcountry in the Shenandoah was a mixture of Scots and Germans, and then as you move south into North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, you found a lot more of those Scots in the Piedmont country. By the time of the American Revolution, this area was reaching a tipping point. In South Carolina in 1775, there were 70,000 whites living in the low country, that is from Charleston to its surrounding area. But above what is now Columbia, South Carolina, which did not exist back then, but above Columbia, there were approximately 50,000 people living in 1775. So as you can see, the low country elites were starting to see the balance being tipped as 50,000 of these new settlers who were mostly dissenters, Presbyterians or Lutherans or you know, Baptists, other faiths were coming into uh, these settlements in the upcountry of South Carolina, and they're about to equal out the number of low country planters there. Charleston was a place in South Carolina where you had the government and few officials wished to venture outside of you know, the lands beyond Charleston, and the backcountry stretched for at least 150 miles to Cherokee territory. It was in this area that you had very little government authority. 
The French and Indian War from 1754 to 1763 convulsed the area and provided a lot of instability and examples of violence. Fighting with the Indians, fighting over the mountains with the French. There was a famous massacre at the Long Canes near Greenwood, South Carolina, where 40 settlers were struck down as they got stuck with their wagons in a bog and the Indians mutilated their bodies. People fled. They left the area ripe for theft and the breakdown of law and order. It was in this context that you had a number of people start to think about how are we going to reestablish stability and order? How are we going to keep the peace in this region that Charleston seems to have abandoned? It was through those churches. The pastors and their deacons became the police force for the backcountry and thus established some sense of civil society on the eve of the American Revolution. You know, why did so few people trust the government in Charleston? Because they were unwilling to go into the area, and when they did, they wanted to assert Anglican authority there. When the patriots in Charleston realized that their interests were in separating from the British, they had to join forces with those new backcountry pastors and deacons and those who had you know, taken up the just cause of making a society uh, livable, peaceful, productive. And it was then in 1775 that you see the Baptist pastors, especially in South Carolina, come out in favor of the American Revolution and saying it was okay to join with the planter aristocracy, but there would be a condition, and that condition would be religious freedom. One of the most famous pastors in South Carolina was Richard Furman. He was a Baptist who in 1774 founded a church at the high hills, high hills of the Santee. And that area would be an area of revolutionary activity. In 1775, in one of the first campaigns in which the Patriots started to drive out loyalist and British sympathizers, Colonel Richardson distributed a letter as he went to each of the backcountry places. This letter had actually been written by Richard Furman, the Baptist pastor. He, of course, uh, had to convince a number of people that resistance to the king and resistance to authority uh, was just through the Bible. And as John Kidd writes in his book, God of Liberty, in such cases, the king ought not to be obeyed, Richard Furman wrote, Cooperating with such abusive actions would put the colonists under the unlimited sway of arbitrary power. And so thus, you had a revolutionary activity in South Carolina and other places in the backcountry that began with Baptist pastors, deacons, Presbyterians, and uh, other dissenter faiths coming on board so that they could organize against British authority. And it was in league with the Anglicans like George Washington and others in the aristocracy in the low country of South Carolina and Virginia and other places. Preachers who were maintained by the Synod of Pennsylvania to traverse the country, quote, poisoned the minds of the people, one British uh, official wrote. A Hessian officer who was one of those German mercenaries that the British government hired to come over and fight against Americans recorded a similar observation when he was down in the South fighting. He said, call this war, the Revolutionary War, anything what you may, but it's not an American rebellion. It is more or less a Scots-Irish Presbyterian rebellion. One historian has agreed. He wrote, the seeds of resistance to British authority were sown by the Presbyterian churches that made captains and colonels out of deacons and elders. 
The same could be said of Baptists, Lutherans, and others. The dreaded British cavalry officer Tarleton, who committed the massacre at the Wax Halls and other things, said, when one detachment led a settlement of Ulstermen, the order was all Presbyterian churches should be burned as shops of sedition. The British understood the powerful message that these pastors were preaching, and it was religious freedom that the British were not going to give them, and by going with the aristocracy and Anglicans, they were going to be guaranteed this. And of course, the Scots-Irish, as they were called, were the most adverse among them. A British lieutenant captured after the famous Battle of King's Mountain in 1780 was marched into North Carolina, and he was forced to listen to, as he wrote, a Presbyterian sermon truly adapted to the principles and the times, or rather stuffed as full of republicanism as a camp is of horse thieves. In other words, he had to listen to a Presbyterian sermon that was preaching the ideas of a republic, a government without a king or established religion, which went hand in hand in Europe. In other words, this American Revolution became as much about religious freedom as resisting government. It was as much about assertion of local governing rights in religion as well as in civil matters. You know, in 1984, at the Republican National Convention, President Ronald Reagan told delegates, politics and morality are inseparable, and religion and politics are necessarily related. He then remarked, government needs the church, because only those humble enough to admit their sinners can bring to democracy the tolerance that it requires. This is a very apropos statement because once the American Revolution was won, the experiment did not end. It continued on because decisions would have to be made about, okay, what do you do about religious freedom? And it was a struggle in some places like in Virginia. You had, again, Presbyterians, Baptists, Lutherans, and others who had participated and fought in the American Revolution and who now wanted their religious freedom. Many Anglicans were still uncertain about this step, whether it would lead to a degeneration or you know, diminishment of their own power. In 1786, Thomas Jefferson was able to push through the House of Delegates and get signed into law the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. This was a major step in the direction of allowing people of faith to practice their faith freely and to keep government off their backs. That was the idea, to keep government off of the churches, off of the decision-making in regard to marriage and all the other areas and aspects that these dissenters had been forming uh, out there in the back country. The statute, of course, is cited uh, even up to the present day as a landmark in uh, human uh, advancement. Uh, none of the founding fathers, mind you, wanted a theocracy. That's exactly what they were against. They were against a religion blanketing everyone practicing just one belief in the belief of the government. They didn't want a church-run state, nor a national established religion. No one then was calling for Christianity as an established religion. What they were calling for was the free practice of Christianity, and that it would be allowed to thrive, that it would be allowed to be part of the public discussion, that it would not be suppressed, and in particular, their own particular faith and belief. You have to remember that these revolutionaries had in the back of their minds that Reformation experience in Europe. It was only 128 years before the American Revolution that Europe had finally settled the Reformation. 
the split of the Catholic Church and then all the many different Protestant denominations that came about meant that there was a Christian context in which people were thinking. Not one denomination should dominate or run our government. Yet none of the founders envisioned a day when religious expression or exercise would be legally prohibited from the public square. As we know, last week there was an important Supreme Court case that was decided. It was a Lutheran church. I thought it was very interesting. It was a Lutheran church in Missouri. They wanted to apply for state funds, actually to get torn up tires for their playground. They applied and they were denied, saying that the state did not believe they should be in the grant process. Went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was decided about a week ago, and it was not a close decision. It was seven to two, which the Supreme Court said the Lutheran Church can apply for state funds to get ripped up tires to put on their child's playground, their children's playground. So I do think that at times we recognize and realize that it's not to exclude religion from the public square that the American Revolution was fought. It was to allow for that, to allow for those different denominations so that the Lutherans, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, all of them that have a playground can apply for ripped up tires for you know, their children to play in. Yes, an influence on our founding fathers and even more relevant in the minds of our founders was that great awakening, that you know, emergence of faith that took place. It burned very brightly with George Whitfield and others traveling through the colonies. And then of course it would uh, wane in the late 18th century only to be revived by a second great awakening. And America has gone through these. It also corresponded with that scientific revolution known as the Enlightenment. So there were still plenty of unbelievers back in the 18th century. We tend to deal with them today as well. Remember, we celebrate Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, who were not evangelicals, who had very interesting beliefs. And we forget that at least 100 other men who contributed to the American Revolution, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, were, of course, men of faith and backed by women of faith as well. Some of these founding fathers are virtually unknown today. These men and women of deep Christian belief provide an inconvenient truth, I believe, for some historians because they came from a decidedly Christian perspective. No one's heard of John Witherspoon. He was a Presbyterian minister and president of Princeton University prior to the American Revolution. Why is he important? Well, he trained some of the most uh, brilliant minds of the founding era. Five signers of the Constitution went through Princeton during the time he was president. One included James Madison. Witherspoon and his faculty taught concepts of liberty, freedom, and independence as God-given rights for all mankind. Your rights come from God from the creator, as the unbelievers say, but from God, not from government. This is one of the hardest concepts that I teach today. And it really is a little bit disturbing to me that I have college students that I have to really explain to them that their rights do not come from the government. They come from God. They are, you know, as Jefferson said, natural rights, but rights from God. In other words, the government does not give you rights. You have them, all right? You already have them, and government is meant to secure them. And that's what the Declaration of Independence said, to secure those rights that we already have. The patriotism of Witherspoon and others was tested, and especially there at Princeton, as two Revolutionary War battles were actually fought on their campus, a really big one in 1777. Incidentally, Princeton wanted to build buildings actually on the battle site and ran into uh, trouble because the National uh, uh, Battlefield Preservation Organization, Civil War Trust, got interested in this Revolutionary War cause 
And so Princeton, who wanted to move one of its academic facilities onto the battlefield, found that a lot of people wanted to preserve it because it is definitely an important part of this story where Witherspoon was teaching something that they then had to fight for right there on their campus grounds. In fact, when the British went through the southern states, the officers did consider some of those churches sedition shops and they would be burned. You know? But churches provided a rallying point. Uh, more than once, Nathaniel Green's army stayed in the high hills of the, San high hills of the Santee where you found Richard Furman's church. And of course, churches ever since have been polling places. They have been places for meetings. Uh, here today, we're having a business launch, a business meeting, and this is how it should be. No one should be afraid to go to a church for an event. No event should be taken away from a church simply because it's being held there. Another important revolutionary that you probably have heard of but may not have heard some of his words is Sam Adams. Sam Adams was the mastermind of the revolution who wrote to a British official on the eve of the struggle and laid out his reasons for fighting. I want to read to you this quote. It's a little long, but it is the words of Sam Adams, one of our great revolutionary forefathers. He wrote, You know that the cause of America is just. You know that she contends for freedom to which all men are entitled, that she contends against oppression and more than just savage barbarity. The blood of the innocent is upon your hands, he was writing to a British official, and all the waters of the ocean will not wash it away. We again make our solemn appeal to the God of heaven to decide between you and us. And we pray that in the doubtful scale of battle, we may be successful as we have justice on our side and that the merciful savior of the world may forgive our oppressors. Those are some strong words there. They echo exactly what the Baptist preacher Richard Furman was saying. Let me read to you some of his language, and you can hear similarities between the two. Again, I'm quoting from John Kidd's book, The God of Liberty. He's a professor at uh, Baylor University. God's superintending providence, Richard Furman wrote, his special interposition in favor of the just and innocent, his attention to the prayers of his supplicating people, and the necessity of religion for the support of morality, virtue, and the true interest of society. That's why he was fighting Richard Furman. That's what he preached to his congregation. Sam Adam wished that America would be a Christian Sparta rather than a degenerating empire that he saw at London and spreading its tentacles around the globe. We must separate ourselves from evil, he and others reasoned. We must have religious freedom rather than corruption of established church. You know, over time, many of our presidents have supported this view. Sam Adams' cousin, John. John Adams wished for a nation where virtue guided its leaders, and he had a prayer that he thought was very special. He wrote about it in a letter to Abigail Adams. Later in the 20th century, Franklin Delano Roosevelt carved it into a mantle that is still there in the state dining room. You've heard this prayer, John Adams' prayer. It goes, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under his, this roof. Where then did all of this founding uh, ideas of religious freedom go? Well, beginning in the 1800s and then lasting in the 20th century, we start to see, again, a tug and a pull away from those Christian moorings. 
In 1801, the Danbury Baptist Association wrote to President Thomas Jefferson, who had just won the presidency. They were worried that their practice of religion might be taken away. Why? Because they had been reading newspapers all during the presidential campaign of 1800. That was a very bitter campaign. That's why I'm not so particularly worried about what's going on in America today. You read those newspaper articles from 1800 and you think like we were just back in that time, you know, because just trade the names, the insults are the same. Thomas Jefferson, who was running for president, was accused of being an atheist and sleeping with one of his slaves, okay? Both were probably true, you know, but there were accusations that were traded, you know, in newspapers now uh, that worried the Connecticut Baptists because they believed that their practice of religion was a natural God-given right, not a favor advanced by a generous government. Would Jefferson take away their rights? And the group wanted to know. This is their language from the Danbury Baptist Association. Our sentiments are uniformly on the side of religious liberty, that religion is at all times and places a matter between God and individuals, that no man ought to suffer a name person or effects on account of his religious opinions, and that the legitimate power of civil government extends no further than to punish the man who works ill to his neighbor. But sir, our constitution of government is not specific. Therefore, what religious privileges we enjoy? We enjoy as favors granted? We believe them to be inalienable rights. They were worried that the First Amendment would not be backed up by this president. Jefferson replied in a letter, not in statute, not in law, in a private letter, and he wrote, gentlemen, the affectionate sentiments of esteem and approbation which you're so good as to express towards me on behalf of the Danbury Baptist Association give me the highest satisfaction believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God and that owes account to none other for his faith or his worship that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions. I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people which declared that the legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And he goes on to explain that he does believe that those are inalienable rights. Jefferson, however, used a strange phrase in there in which he said there was a wall between church and state. And there begins, in the 1800s, one of the struggles that Christians and those people who are unbelievers uh, are put against each other. This idea of separation of church and state, which only appears in a letter, not in statute, not in our Declaration of Independence, not in our Constitution. Nowhere in those documents do you find the actual phrase, separation of church and state. It appears again in 1878 in a Supreme Court decision the justices succinctly summarized Jefferson's intent for separation of church and state in the Reynolds versus United States case there in 1878. Their opinion said, the rightful purposes of civil government are for its officers to interfere when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order. In this is found the true distinction between what properly belongs to the church and what belongs to the state. Still in the early 1900s, we had presidents who were very Christian. Theodore Roosevelt believed that Christianity was superior to other faiths. Woodrow Wilson said, quote, the Bible is the word of life. And who can forget Franklin D. Roosevelt when he issued, uh, when he uh, spoke on national radio uh, during the D-Day invasion in what is known as the D-Day prayer in which he asked all Americans to pray with him and did so over the radio in which everyone could hear the President of the United States calling on God's assistance to defeat the Nazi scourge. 
The Allied commander, Dwight Eisenhower, later became president. He had actually been here in Alexandria uh, before World War II. And he said, do you think I could have fought my way through that war, ordered thousands of fellows to their deaths, if I couldn't have gotten down on my knees and talked to God? I couldn't live a day of my life without God. But since World War II in 1947, and then also in 1962, you have the Supreme Court chipping away at Christian faith by restricting expressions of religion in public, prayer in schools and other things. Universities and colleges have become radicalized in some of their beliefs, and thus what we have today is a true struggle between people of faith and people of unfaith that was never intended by our founding fathers. Freedom of religion did not mean the freedom to impose your faith or impose your unfaith on anyone. So what are the solutions today in this struggle that we have fallen into that really was not the intent of our founding fathers? Well, become engaged. Vote. Question your representatives, professors, and others who teach garbage. Do not let them hold up tenure, academic freedom as defenses, or freedom of the press, or other things like that. Those defenses are influential weapons that can be used against people of faith. And of course, most importantly, read the Founding Fathers, their words themselves, and those documents. Uh, I would love to hear more of that being quoted instead of simply people expressing their ideas of what they think about it. And so constructive engagement is what Christians can do. It will affect change and will preserve for this great nation those founding principles among which was freedom of religion. Thank you very much.